Well, we're continuing this morning in our study of the man Joseph, looking at the Joseph narrative or the Joseph story, if you will. I've entitled the message, Joseph, the Early Years. Have you noticed, and I've said it before, but let's amuse on it for just a moment, you and I did not have uh, the option of choice into which families we would be born. You notice that? You were born in the family that you were born in and the, the life experiences that you had that came upon you, <clears throat> much of that at early ages, you, you had very little choice in that. Maybe some of you had a, just a wonderful childhood and you looked back and it was tranquil and peaceful and, and uh, the family intact and, and brothers and sisters was a loving, tender home. If that's the case, you were probably very unusual. Uh, even with that, uh, the waves of life in a fallen world tend to hit us. Don't they? they beat against the shoreline of our life, and, and occasionally the storms hit, and we're rocked. We are. I can uh, remember numerous times in, in my family when, uh, though it was a good family, wasn't, not all were saved. That was a definite dimension in my family with my father, strong leader, loving father, a uh, very able provider, yet uh, was spiritually dead. Had no interest in the Bible, no interest in the gospel, no interest in attending church whatsoever. At, uh, during those years, it was uh, through my mother that uh, my God uh, had worked. And uh, as a young girl at, at the age of nine, she went to Sunday school and came to know Christ. And she ended up marrying my father. She shouldn't have. My dad wasn't saved. That was a mixed marriage. We're not to be unequally yoked together. If you're a believer, you need to marry a believer and honor the Lord with that and keep your standards high. Well, for whatever and all the reasons, I was born in a family where it was mixed spiritually. And, uh, and, and all that went on, she wept from time to time because uh, she bore that burden alone of raising her children and making sure they were in Sunday school. And she would eventually have seven children, and that was a lot. That was a lot in her. And I remember sitting next to her in church, and she would long for the day that my father would sit there amidst all the others, but she sat there by herself. And uh, I remember all that. I remember that, even her uh, saying, Eddie, we need to tithe. We need to do that. And, 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 to, uh, and, and, and she would take the cash out of his wallet, and so we need to give this to the Lord. And, and he never said no. He never said no, and she, she did what was. And isn't it funny? Those impressions are just a little guy going, you know, through those for, formative years. That's what we call that. The formative years of life. There's a reason why we. Because those experiences and those settings that we find ourselves uh, coming into as a young baby and then growing form us and shape us. Uh, we're like very wet cement. If you find wet cement, if you're like me as a boy, I could hardly resist putting my initials in TZ was here or something. To the, to the, <laughs> to the workman didn't like to see that, nor the owner, if that was the case. But I, I'd be lying to you to say I never did that, but I did that. Uh, but our lives are like that early on. They're like wet cement. They're taking form and shape, and bit by bit, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's forming, getting harder and harder. And even green cement isn't, isn't formed yet. It takes, I, th I remember, 30 days or whatever uh, for cement to form. And even, I saw this documentary on the Hoover Dam 
with all the concrete that was poured there, still it's curing. It's not all set. It still gives off heat from the chemical process there. The thing of it is, is the life experiences that happen to us early have a way of shaping us more than what happens later. I'm not saying your heart is concrete now, but some of us have been around for quite a while, and the life expense, uh, experiences things kill, still can stagger us and hurt us and throw us, but it's not quite the same, is it, as when we're young? And that's what we're going to look at today in Joseph's life to try and understand uh, who he is and who this godly man was, this man for a season that God was going to strategically use to save this lineage that would flow through Jacob, that would bear eventually the Christ, man's only hope. The hope of the human race lie with Jacob. Well, perhaps uh, you think in your family God made a mistake. You look around and say, I don't even look like the rest of them. I've had that. That doesn't help my family. My two brothers have red hair. They would have thought, I'm in the, they're in the wrong family. There is some Irish blood in our family, and my beard, I had the beard twice, it has reddish in it. One of my brothers is blonde. My, my sisters, I think, they're brunettes. <laughs> I'm not sure, though, because their high school graduation and college, they had blondes. So I, 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 who knows? I don't know. That's beyond me and most men. But it's uh, quite a variety. Heinz 57, someone said. And you look around and say, I'm not, I should, am, I, am I in the right family? I think they switched me at the hospital or something. No, I'm probably not, although it happens occasionally. I hope not. You're in the family that God designed you to be in, and your family and your early life's experience did much to form you. They did into what you are today. More importantly, it was your response to such things which has really molded you for good and otherwise, for bad. It's your response to that. We're never responsible for what comes across our doorstep, but we are always responsible for how we respond to that. And we can respond in a way that is tenderhearted and loving and totally commit ourselves to the mercy of God to carry us, or we can become very hard, embittered. You know that? The same sun that, uh, uh, that hardens the clay into like pottery uh, melts the wax. It's the same sun, the same experience. And we can become very, and you know, you know people. Things happen, they become embittered, embitter all their life. And nobody wants to be around people like that, do they? When you have a holiday or a day off or something, you go like, are they on your short list? I don't think so. They are, because it ends up driving everyone, even, even family from them. And we can become embittered if we respond wrongly to the things that happen to us. Joseph certainly could have become embittered. Well, such was true for Joseph. He was born into a messed up, can I say it again? A messed up family. I mean, it was screwed up from beginning to end. It was worse than your family. You say, nah, I'm not sure. It was. We'll talk about the dynamics of which he was, uh, he didn't choose it. He came into it, okay? Uh, he, uh, he came into this, and he experienced all sorts of things. Yet God, God would take all of these things, good and bad, and he'd weave it together. Joseph's heart was tender, tenderized by the Lord, 
He would respond right, and God would make him his man for his season. And he shines like a bright luminary uh, in the midst of much darkness and unbelief and evil and sin, even in his own family, even among his own brothers who are born into the same nuttiness, if you will, in Jacob's household. God weaves it together. He is able to do that and so on. Well, I'm reminded we're not victims. We're not victims. Our society loves to say that. You know, we're victim. Victimism is the big thing. Nobody's responsible. And therefore, I can explain everything because I'm a victim and you're a victim and we're all victims. And, and listen, there is, that, that ruins the dignity of man. Uh, you and I are responsible. There are consequences to our choices and how we respond to all the things that come into our life. Look, listen, we live in a sinful world. Sin happens to us. We didn't choose it. Things happen, okay? It happened to the Lord Jesus. Do you notice that in the gospel? It happened to him. It happens to us. And more than that, in the fall, we sin. And then we live out those terrible consequences of sowing and reaping. That's true. Well, we're not victims. In all things, we have a choice to respond in a way that pleases the Lord. In all, way, in all situations, in all circumstances, there is a way of escape. There's a way of deliverance. There's a way to respond that honors the Lord, even the darkest of night. Well, two observations about Joseph's early years that should encourage you, encourage me, it does. For God can bring good out of bad. He can and he does. For each of us lives in this fallen world where sin happens to us. And God is, even in the midst of it, stuff that happens and the waves that hit us, and stuff we say, I never saw it coming. I didn't choose this. I didn't want this family. I didn't know that would happen. All of those type of things. And yet God, in the midst of it, if we respond in a way that's tenderhearted and right, casting ourselves solely upon the Lord, he can bring good out of it. He can. He really can even through our tears. Well, the first observation. The formative influences of Joseph's life show that he was born into a troubled family. I'll take your Bible and look at uh, Genesis 37. Uh, I, I said at the top of our, your page here, verses 1 to 4 are going to be the only verses we look at as we're moving forward in this, the generations of Jacob, specifically Joseph. But then we're going, to, uh, we're going to look back at some of these formative influences that help us to understand this messed up, troubled family that the young Joseph was born into to help us to see uh, some of these currents and things that were moving on according to the text. Though Joseph is introduced to us in our text in chapter 37 as being 17 years of age, we already know a whole lot about his family and his early life-shaping events. Look at uh, 37, verses 1 and 4. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. Now this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, or better known as his father's concubines. And he brought their father, that is Joseph, a bad report about his brothers. 
Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him at all. Well, notice A, that Joseph was the firstborn of his father's favorite wife. Now, if you're at least half awake today already, it uh, should uh, uh, light up the dashboard there that this is a screwed-up family. He's the firstborn of his favorite wives. Now, somewhere it ought to be written, somebody said, and I think rightfully so, um, one woman to a kitchen. I, you know, to most men, they go like, the, a woman is wired differently from a man. Have you noticed that, men? You can say it, amen. Yeah. They're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're, you know, God's final creation. But sometimes they're pretty confusing to us, aren't we? You go like, what? What's that? And, you know, it, it kind of, the curveball goes by us, and we're, you know, I know women sometimes think men are stupid and don't get it, and that kind of stuff and all that. Now, imagine multiplying that a couple of times over in your home, where you got wife A, wife B, and not only that, you got in a strange uh, perversion there in that day, where even their, their handmaids, uh, their uh, concubines, you could also, uh, in that day and in that culture, and it was degenerative, uh, sleep with them and have children with them. Now you got sort of like two wives, and you got tricked into the one, you got the other one years later, the one you wanted, uh, and then you got these, and then and you got all these boys, one one daughter, Dinah, and you go like, wow, there must have been some pretty exciting currents floating around that place. Then you got the one who Jacob loved, really, and she couldn't bear any children till later. And you got all the other ones, Leah, she's as fruitful as a, as a, as a pear tree in the backyard. My mother had seven children. She said, we just do our laundry in there. We have another child. She, I can't figure this out. Leah was like that. She just bore all this and, there, and, and, and so on. And here's Rachel, no go until late. And Joseph is finally uh, delivered by Rachel as her firstborn. He's son number, he's child number 11 in a family at that time that there were 11 children. And each of the mamas pushing their children to be favored by Jacob. I can't imagine what a mess that was. That's the family that Jacob, I'm sorry, that Joseph came into. I got to tell you, it must have been absolutely nuts. A, Joseph was firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. It was said that Jacob had worked for her for 14 years in Genesis 29, 20. And uh, you remember that. He worked for Laban. He wanted to marry Rachel. And uh, the, the great day of the wedding came. Can you imagine this? They have all the festivities. And in that custom, he goes into her on the wedding night to have uh, intimacy with her. And he discovers in the darkness, he doesn't, or he doesn't discover in the darkness who it is. And he wakes up in the morning. I would have liked to have seen his face. No, probably I wouldn't. 
Now, we're talking about being shocked. I got the wrong bride. Somebody, somebody did a bait and switch here on me, and I got, Leah, what are you doing here? I married Rachel. So he thought. And Laban said to him, we have a custom in this land, and it's the first, it's the oldest that goes first. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't tell Joseph that at, uh, before he had worked. Seven years, seven years, I mean seven years, and then he got tricked. You see, God, there's a lot of things going on. Remember Jacob's name, Yaakov, means the deceiver, the tricker. He had tricked his brother out of the birthright and out of the blessing. I know what that was. You okay, Virginia? Okay. That'll keep us all awake, even me. <laughs> And that he had tricked him, and, and God was going to teach him what it was like to be tricked himself as God began to work with him through the years. And it didn't feel very nice. And so at the end of it, he goes to Laban and says, what did you do? I wanted Rachel. She's the one I love. It was love at first sight at the well at Haran when he first saw Rachel. He just loved her. And so Laban said, well, work for me for another week, the old English said. Another, another seven years. Seven more years. He's married to Leah. You get two for the price of one. Fourteen years. And that text says that Jacob loved Rachel so much that it seemed like but a few days as he worked and day after day, year after day. You imagine that. And finally he marries Rachel and uh, love at first sight. Well, he, uh, Joseph, that is, no doubt felt particularly cherished being born by the woman that his father loved. Now, can you? I, I can see that almost in the text. It doesn't say it in so many words, but he was the 11th child born in that household, and he was the first fruit of this woman, Rachel, who his daddy really loved. He felt special, I'm sure. And uh, it was going to be evident even later. His dad, Jacob, had another wife, Leah, along with two concubines who gave, all gave him children. I said that. There were 11 children. <clears throat> well, I should say at this point, this was never God's intention for marriage. Never. It was to be one woman, one man, one life. Okay? We see that in God's uh, creation covenant there in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. And anything else than that is a, is a perversion of it. God didn't openly judge that in the Old Testament, but you can see the seeds of the consequences of the judgment in the lives of the families and the, and the people involved with it. You can, you can see it. It was a mess. Absolutely a mess. And when we get to the New Testament, when we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the chapter where Paul is writing to answer their questions on marriage, he says to the Corinthians, each man is to have his own wife, and each wife is to have her own man. Monogamy was always God's design and pattern, and so this was a perversion of that. Well, B, Joseph moved in haste when he talked about influence. Okay, this is the family he was, he was uh, born in. Uh, now, what about some early influences insofar as events that young Joseph found himself involved with? Joseph, as a part of the family, was moved in haste uh, from uh, his grandfather Laban's homeland 
which was near the valleys of the Tigris and Euphrates River near Baghdad, near, near Iraq somewhere in that area, in the western Levant, if they say, and, uh, and they were fleeing. Now, you should know that this was not a peaceful journey. And, and in the text, just go back, if you would, to look at Genesis 31, because that's going to give the account. Okay, so let me give the setting now. Jacob is there, and he served 14 years. He finally gets Rachel. He serves another six, year, another six years, a total of 20 years out of the promised land, working for Laban, this domineering father-in-law, this manipulative strongman, if you will. And, and yet God blesses him. He blesses him. And it comes to a day. He blesses him with livestock. It's just uh, this coming... Uh, just out the years, so to speak, in God's favor and blessing, even all the trickery and things that were trying to go on with the breeding and all that. And it came to a point where Jacob becomes afraid of his father-in-law, and he says, we have to flee. Get everybody packed up. Let's go. Let's get out of here after 20 years. He takes his wives, his concubines, all his children, all his wealth, and all that, and they begin with great haste to make their way across the desert, the area which only had one oasis in the midst of it. And there they are on their camels. One of these days I'll show you a picture of faith on a camel when we were over at the desert there. I was on one too, like a cowboy with my hat like this. But uh, there he is on a camel. Uh, being the youngest, easy to understand that he'd be riding with his mother, Rachel, on a camel. I'm saying this was not a family vacation. This was a family get out of town before sunset. And such a thing in such haste with a lack of peace and all the rest leaves a strong impression on a young man named Jacob. And Genesis 31 gives that whole account of it. And look at verse 17, then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all of his livestock ahead of him along with all the goods he had accumulated. In verse 19, when Laban, that's his father-in-law, had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole the household their idols. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by telling him uh, he, and by not telling him he was running away. And so he fled with all that he had. He crossed the river, and he heads out towards Gilead. And on 20, in verse 22, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, taking his relatives with him. And so Laban pursues Jacob for seven days. Here he is. They're making their way. And now Laban, he's all upset. He's teed off. He's angry. Uh, and so he's in hot pursuit, pursuing Jacob and all that he has. In verse 23, he catches him. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days, caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. But God intervenes. God came to Laban in a dream that night said, and warns him not to harm Jacob or any of that. We can understand that Laban might have done that had God not uh, revealed himself and warned him. Look at verse 26, and Laban says to Jacob, What have you done? You deceived me. You carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could, and then he puts a good spin on it, I could have sent you away with a party in essence. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren, my daughters goodbye. You've done a foolish thing. 
I have the power to harm you. And you can imagine if God had not intervened, because God does not intervene without purpose, that he would have harmed him. But last night he tells him, God said, be careful. Now you've gone off, and so on. Well, such a, <clears throat> such a hasty get out of town right across the desert on a young boy. That's what Joseph was. He was a young boy at this point. It leaves a strong impact, the panic that settled into the hearts of all that family. Um, surely was felt and long remembered in his life. But then soon afterwards, well, Laban leaves him. He does bless him and leave him and so on. You can read the rest of that. Number two, then soon afterward, if that weren't enough, he's still making the way across and he gets, uh, he lets it be known to his brother Esau. Remember, he ripped Esau off. That's why he ended up way over there out of the promised land. He stole the blessing. He had stole the birthright earlier and he got out of town. Now, I'll remind you, now Esau was a, was, a, was a man of the woods. He was a real Pennsylvanian, if you will. Deer season came around and he was like, man, stringing his bow. He was a, he was a, he loved to get the game and then make the stew and all the rest. And his dad loved that. Esau was a, was a, a man's man, some have described. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was. He was uh, his mama's favorite, Re- Rebecca. And uh, you, you see all that. And some of you know the story and remember from Sunday school better. And she helped him deceive Isaac to get the blessing, but when it was all done, Jacob, I got to get out of town. That's how he ended up over there for 20 years. Now he's coming back. Now he's now he's got a now he's got to face the music, so to speak, when he comes back, and he's afraid. He's afraid. Now he left in bad terms with Laban. Now he's going to confront his brother, his brother, a brother who may still be fomenting all sorts of bitterness and may just wipe him out and his family and the fear that sets in again. Not only panic, but now fear and the young Joseph feeling that fear. And this is found in chapter 32 where he prepares uh, to meet. He's still crossing the desert, if you will. Look at verse uh, uh, 7 of chapter 32. And in great fear, distressed, uh, and distress, Jacob divides the people who are with him. That's his family into two groups. He prays, oh, Lord, help me, protect me. In verse 9, uh, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me. Well, that's for sure. Verse 11, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. You promise to prosper me and make uh, my seed like, the, like the, uh, the sand of the sea, and so on and so forth. And you recall that, that whole incident, maybe you do, because in, and if you jump ahead to chapter 33, there's, it talks about actually when he meets uh, Esau. Now he hears uh, that the report, I have it on your sheet, yeah, he's, while making the journey along with us, he's terrified to hear that Uncle Esau, that's J- Joseph's uncle, was coming with 400 men. Now, 400 men. There's one thing to have a family reunion and the families join together, but so I'm going to bring all of my buddies with me, and 400, you go like, oh, it is true. 
He is going to avenge what I did and wipe me out. That is not a good report. That was not a welcome wagon. Some of you moved in there and welcome wagon came and they gave you a little, little bag and they had all these little free samples and the merchants around and this and that. Oh, isn't that nice, right? 400 men coming with Esau is not a welcome wagon. I mean, he's, he's afraid. He is terror, and it's reason to be, because he snuckered his brother out of what belonged to his brother. And now it was payday. You notice there's always a payday? What a man sows, he reaps. It's like putting corn in the ground. It's going to come up. It's going to come up. And he was afraid of it. 20 years later now, here it is. And so what it, his theme is, his, his scheme is, I'll send him in waves. I'll send gifts to try and appease him. And they'll go in the first wave and the second. And those that were nearest to him, his immediate family, and then Rachel and Joseph were at the very back, and he was the last. And that if he, was, he thought he was sending them off to their death as they approached Esau and the 400 men, wipe them out, wipe them out, wipe them out, and finally he'd be wiped out. Well, to a young boy, Joseph, uh, riding with his mother on a camel, I got news to you. These, these things, with what cement, to a young, he'll never, he never forgot it. I'm sure of it. Never. It was the panic of Uncle Esau coming and uh, formed him to who he was. Yet God worked in Esau's heart and and it's, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, let me, let me show you where he says that. Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 10. Um, um, Esau says to him, I don't want your gifts. I have more than enough. I have more than enough. Look what he says. His brother is so kind to him. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept these gifts from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. That's a beautiful expression. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me. I have all that I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. And God gave a, a very kind meeting, which could have been totally otherwise. And he thought it would be otherwise. Well, then, then look at uh, number three. Uh, the, the night before he met Esau, the waves have gone forth. God was going to intervene in Jacob's life on the other side of the river. He was all by himself. And we, that night, uh, it's when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord wrestled him into submission. And Jacob would walk the rest of his days with a limp from that night until he died. And, and in 32, it presents that. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful expression. I, uh, I grew up, uh, I played basketball in my early years, but then in junior, junior high I started wrestling <clears throat> and uh, wrestled uh, junior, uh, junior Olympic, AAA, and then high school, and then some college, and even did some coaching uh, as a pastor in Indiana, and it really opened up a lot of doors into a small community. It was amazing. I had a key to the high school, and and able to see a number of the wrestlers come to know Christ and married a cheerleader and a wrestler at one point. And, and uh, in Indiana, that's a big thing because basketball is everything in Indiana. And, 
And the kids on the wrestling team were barely hanging in school. They were oftentimes the kids on the other side of the tracks. They were tough kids. I don't need school, you know, this kind of thing. And so it was a great opportunity. I just loved the guys and, and really just uh, tried to teach them the gospel of Christ. And some of them did fairly well in the state competition, Gene Dyson and a couple of the guys. I remember we had an all-nighter at the church. We had uh, finally built a beautiful facility and, and a gym, and we were having an all-nighter lock-in. <clears throat> and these guys, were, they never went to church at all, ever. And so I said, hey, you guys come. You guys got to come. You got to come. We're going to play games and all that. Can we, can we bring our girlfriends? Yeah, bring your girlfriends. Oh, yeah, great, yeah. And they came walking in. I'll never forget. They came walking right down the center aisle. It was the, and I know David's been, David Allen's been to the hexagonal shape. Auditorium. We walked down the center aisle, and then they walked up on the platform, and they're looking into the, the baptistry. There was a bat right behind, a, you know. And they looked in and they said, Coach, this is the greatest church we ever saw. You got a jacuzzi right in the middle of the church. This is fabulous. And, you know, I never told them otherwise. I said, isn't that neat? Yeah. And uh, so that was all part of that. All that to say, there was always a healthy rivalry between wrestlers and basketball players. And... uh, you know, we call them round ball artists and, and, and all that. Because, they, you know, basketball was a big, big, big sport and bigger than wrestling, the following and all that. And, and so we always, and when I got to a point where I, I would tease the basketball player. I said, you know, wrestling is the sport of God. It never says that God played one-on-one with Jacob. You know, they played, you know, pig or something, horse or, you know. It, he wrestled with him. The angel of the Lord, right there in, in chapter 33. The angel of the Lord, or chapter 32, the angel of the Lord wrestled. He wrestled. He wrestled with Jacob. And this is a Christophany. This, of course, is, is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ as God, uh, the Lord, uh, confronted Jacob before this scary time he was going to have with his brother and uh, to bring him right to submission. And uh, it's a wonderful encounter. In fact, he says that in verse 30 of chapter 32. So Jacob called the place Penel and uh, saying, It is because I saw God's face to face, yet my life was spared. Limping. And he came walking across in the morning, the the brook there, Jabbok, uh, limping. And uh, I have on my sheet here, as he walked across the river, uh, Joseph must have said to his dad, 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 what, Dad, what in the world happened to you? As he limped from that day forth until the last day that he lived, which would be about 27 years later, he walked with a limp. Such, I say to you, such things uh, are formative influences on a young, a young boy's life. Uh, and Jacob would have uh, certainly told him the whole story of wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Well, number four, then to be in the promised land at Bethel. There as they finally made their way up and to have his dad show him the very spot that the ladder had touched uh, the, the, the ground. Remember, he dreamt, he put his head on a stone in Genesis 28. And then in 35 is the account where he returns to that place. Bethel means in Hebrew, house of God. And there, Jacob tells Joseph the wonderful story 
we can see and pointing maybe, and that was the very spot. Can you imagine that? The eyes of a young boy. I'm saying that these are the influences and circumstances of his family that here this young boy is involved in and growing up in, and it's molding him and shaping him and, and, and all of that. And I say to you what impressions these must have made upon that young man, that young mind of that young, young boy. Uh, how real God must have seemed to him, to Joseph, during those traumatic days. One man writes, F.B. Meyer, F. Meyer writes, uh, this may have been the turning point of his young life, though his brothers were unmoved, and they were. They were unmoved in the things of God. There was a deep, deep response in Joseph's heart where he must have said, F.B. Meyer says, this God shall be my God forever and ever and ever. What an impression. There's one other formative influence that we must cite because this is, this is huge, I think. It's huge in your life if you have suffered uh, similar type losses. And, and I'm referring to uh, C here. Moreover, these impressions upon Joseph were soon deepened by three deaths. My father used to be funny when I would grow up. He <clears throat> would discover that somebody died, and he would always say, bad things happen in three. Who's next? You ever hear that expression, things happen in three? I always wondered about when does it begin and when does it end, you know, sort of like, <laughs> you know, it's a year later, and oh, there's number three, and when we start counting over again, you know. Bad things happen in three. There were three deaths here that happened in the early years of Joseph to help us to understand uh, who he is by way of influence. First one in chapter 35, verse 8, is Deborah. That's his grandmother Rebecca's uh, nurse, if you will. Uh, aged nurse. She dies. The text tells us in 35.8, Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. Now, she is significant because Joseph came along at a time when his grandmother, Rebecca, was already gone. She had died. And she was an important link to her grandmother and to his past, to his grandmother. And some of you know what grandparents and those near them have meant to you. I'm so thankful for Faithy's mom and dad, and God gave them many years to be an influence upon our children. And uh, to say the same thing, perhaps uh, in a tender way, in a way in which a grandparent uh, can say uh, only helps them. It's a wonderful thing, collateral support, not only to help with the care and everything else, but spiritually. Joseph lost the only link he had to his grandmother. And then second, if that weren't enough, and even horrifically in this young boy's life, Rachel, his own mother, dies. Look at the same chapter, verses 16 and 17, chapter 35, 16 and 17. Then they moved on from Bethel, and while uh, they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for you have another son. 
And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Ani. But his father, Jacob, changed his name to Benjamin. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephraim. He lost his own mother. And I have on your sheet, and I think it's really true, that she was the most important person to him in his entire life. In the craziness of the house with multiple mothers and, and all the rest, and being born and nurtured and cared, he lost his mother. And maybe some of you lost a mom early on. It, it has a way of shaping and forming or a dad or someone close to you like nothing else. He could not be the same. And then the third, in the same chapter, verse 28, 9, he loses his grandfather, Isaac. Unless you got confused in the text, Isaac is still alive. Jacob actually came and lived in the vicinity of his father, Isaac. And then in a short time after Isaac dies, that's Joseph's grandfather. These things made Joseph what he was. I'm saying to you that uh, we can never exaggerate the importance of childhood events, never, in their ability to, to, to make strong formation and prints upon us as to who we are. There were a number of deaths in my early years as a young boy that had great influence on me. And time to time, I've, I've talked about that. It's it, it taught me early that life is short, that life is uncertain. There are no guarantees. It's not just old people that die. And that's a, that's a rude awakening when you're a young guy growing up and, and you discover a funeral home. What's that? And uh, someone's sick, and then you hear they And you begin to, you, you, maybe you have a pet at first, and the pet dies, and you go like, whoa. And you come in there realizing, you, you know what I'm saying by that. Some it hardens, and evidently the brothers were hardened by, but not Joseph. And in my own family, I, I think of my grandfather when he died, and, uh, and my dad's father as a young boy, and, and on the last night of the viewing, and there for some strange reason they had viewings for two and three nights. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or what up there, but the last night my father took me in thought it would be important for me to see as a young, young boy of about seven, uh, my grandfather laid out in a casket. I, I, won't, I won't forget that. And my father wept and wept, and, 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 and the pastor even came to the house after that. I don't remember a lot of things in those years. I remember that. Isn't that something? And then a short while after that, I've said that before, the neighborhood girl, Debbie, lived down around the block. She died of pneumonia when I was in third grade. And, it, it really, and right around that time, God brought me to saving faith. Uh, death, uh, uh, the, that early childhood experience. And Joseph was like that. He lost his connection to his grandmother with Deborah, his own mother. That was enormous. And then his grandfather, Isaac. I remember in our church when I was uh, in eighth grade, that uh, there was a terrible tragedy the night before. A, a young family, he had about four or five kids. His son was in our Sunday school class. He, he was killed in a little Volkswagen bug coming home from work. 
And I remember the anguish and the pain, and the whole church was grieving over that, the loss of that family, and how would they get on, and all of that. You remember that. And then finally, uh, a little bit after that, my father's best friends died and had multiple kids, six in one family, seven in another. And the men died, and they're in around 40, 42 years of age. It, it wasn't it, those, it, it, I could see that as I got older. It wasn't the strong influence, but it was an influence upon me. As I thought about what should I do with my life and what is life and how short it is and how uncertain it is and, and who is God and, and what's it all, you, you know what I'm saying? Those things are, are huge. They're legion in our life. And the same may be true of your experience. We can never, I say to you, never exaggerate the importance of childhood events. One man writes on that, whenever it is within our power, we must see that these childhood events are inducements to godliness. Or, when it is not within our power, change them. To change them, we must react to them as believers in the goodness and in the sovereignty of God. And thus he writes, to demonstrate the transforming reality of God in human life. He went on to write later, and I thought, who knows but that God is forming the character of tomorrow's Christian leaders in your home, in your church and in your classroom. That's why they call it the formative years. And God has a way of weaving all these things together, working on multiple chessboards, if you will, to bring about all these things for his purposes. The early formative influences. Wouldn't it be something we pass the microphone around and, and just ask you to give two or three things that, that were really early in your life and they were formative. Some of them may be great moments of joy and blessing. Some of them made great tears and sadness. You, get, you think back about it and say, really, God used that to, to, in my life to make me into the man or the woman who I'm becoming and who I am. And God did that. I wouldn't go through that again. I think of that in my own life. And, and some of you remember that when Matt was killed. Here she is, uh, uh, nearly engaged, engaged all but a ring, and and a drunk driver kills Matt and beginning his third year at the United States Naval Academy. And we went through the tears of that. And Dad can't fix it, you know. And it hit her majorly. It hit David and Jonathan, Faith and I, and others in other ways as the circles went out. We, we suffered through that. And that's one of those huge events. And you go like, God, I know you're in charge. And they're dear family. The clots box, and we think, Lord, what good? And it molds us, and it shapes us, and helps us explain and understand who we are. I'm saying the same thing about Joseph. He had all of these things, born into a crazy home, and these, these traumatic events. And then the death of those that were near him as a young boy shaped him to help make him into the man that God would make him to be to provide the deliverance for his people during the days of famine. Well, there's a second and quickly, a second observation about Joseph's early years that should encourage us that God can bring good even out of bad or evil. In verses 3 and 4, now we're in our text, we discover verse 3 and 4 of, of, of chapter 37, the early experiences of Joseph's home life were used by God for good. These are not the influences 
that he was born into. These are the things that actually happened to him. Look what it says. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was born to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that his, their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Well, Joseph A. was the favorite son and dearly loved by his aged father, Jacob. He was. It's a quick reminder, isn't it? Beware of parental favoritism. Beware of that. It's, uh, it's insidious, it's divisive, uh, and if you practice that, don't ever wonder why it separates your kids and grandkids years later. It will. It will. We see the example here. Jacob should not have done that. But he did it, and God was going to even take that and use that for his glory, and eventually to bring the brothers around at the end of the Genesis account where they ought to be. I, re, I, I remember that in my own family. Um, uh, one time my father was expressing, I don't know if it was a will or something with seven children. I happened to be with him. I don't know if he was picking it up or dropping off information. And the question was asked upon the contingent beneficiary. You ever do a life insurance model? They want to know primary, who, who's, who, and then if it's a common disaster or if they predecease, then who? And then so you have come up with a second. And he said, all my children equally. And so I thought, that's the way, that's right. That's the way it ought to be. I was very close to my dad, but it shouldn't have been me. All children equally. Beware of that. Here we see Joseph breaking that, 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 that uh, cardinal common sense rule. And his family suffered because of it. Well, look, number one, this favoritism of Jacob toward Joseph was evidenced by the coat that Joseph received from him. Now, it's unfortunate that the King James Version, of which most of us learned when we went to Sunday school and we saw the picture and the flannel graph and all the rest, and I'll never get it out of my head. You know, there he is, and this, this is long, beautiful, flowing. It wasn't his coat of many colors. I'm sorry to tell you that. That comes out of the Greek uh, translation years later, and it's unfortunate. It was a total interpretation. The Greek translators thought, well, it's this beautiful tunic or this long flowing coat, and therefore it had to be beautiful. So it's this coat of many colors, and it's crept its way into our material because of that. Unfortunately, that's not what the Hebrew says. It's a coat that was extended. That's the description of the tunic. It was a coat or tunic that was extended. Extended over the wrist and over the ankles. Now, why is that significant? The tunics or coats that were worn in that day by working people, for obvious reasons, were sleeveless, okay? And they only went down to the knees. If you're going to wear something like that, and you're going to be in the field with the sheep, or you're going to be laying stone as a mason or a carpenter or whatever it was that you did. You didn't want to be encumbered with some sort of long flowing thing, right? And that's, that's true. Now here comes Joseph with this non-working man's, sometimes we'll say blue collar, white collar, right? We understand what that means. He's coming out, appearing to his brothers, wearing by his father's, if you will, insignia, 
He's the boss. He wasn't wearing a working man's coat. His father was designating him to be his heir. The, the Johnny come lately, the Joseph, number 11 born, Benjamin came later, but here he is, and his father's saying, he's my heir. That's what that meant. He's getting the inheritance. And in that day, the father's law was supreme. It was absolutely supreme. And so his coat on your sheet was not many colors, but was extended over the wrist and the ankles. This was not a working man's coat. It belonged to the boss or the manager. Uh, the king's sons would wear these kind of things. They weren't those that were out there sweating in the brow, laboring. And so it was, they knew, they had surmised that daddy always loved you best, right? But now when the official, here it is, dad does this, and it's the insignia that he's my heir, he would receive it. They hated him for it. Can you see it? That's what's going on here in the text. He's chosen now to be the heir, to succeed Reuben. Reuben's his oldest. Reuben's the oldest son, but he became disqualified. He became disqualified. It sounds strange to our ears in chapter 35, verse 22. Reuben, at one time, at one, one day came along, and he went into his father's concubine, and he had sex with her, and his father found out about it, and because of that, he was disqualified to be the heir apparent. He was out. Now, it's strange to us to hear that, but he was out. And therefore, Jacob was free to choose any of his sons that he so desired to choose. He would not choose Judah and Levi, because in route, when they stopped at Shechem, they did a horrendous thing. Their sister Dinah was raped by the men there in Shechem. But then, but then you see, uh, I mean, Judah and Levi went and, and did some trickery and shenanigans and killed all the people of Shechem, all the males, and looted and robbed and took it away, so much so that Jacob says, you have made my name like a stench in the land. We have to leave here. And they left. And so there goes Reuben, he's out. Judah, whom God would eventually work through Judah to bring the line of Christ and his grace. Judah's out. Levi's out. It would be the priestly line in time. He's out. And so Jacob is able to pick his, his heir. Now, I said last week there are only four mentions of Joseph in the New Testament. Only four. Jesus never refers to him. But there is an account of the woman at the well when you get in John 4, verse 35, where the Samaritan woman, the account says, and here's the well of the land that Jacob gave to Joseph. She tells the Lord that there. That's one of the accounts where Jake, uh, Joseph's name is mentioned. Jacob only had a very little parcel of land that he bought. And that confirms that the Old Testament is silent that, in fact, Jacob did make Joseph his heir. And, in fact, the New Testament account in John 4 tells us he received the land from his father. That's what's going on here. He didn't walk up to his brother and say, I, I wanted that Botany 500. You're wearing that nice polo outfit. Dad always loved you best. We, you, we hate you. No, it was that, but it was far more than that. 
He was the heir, firstborn of his beloved wife. Think of the mess of that screwed-up family. I mean, it was bad. Well, the result was, number two, the brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They were, wow. And number NB, finally, moreover, his brothers hated him even more because what? He was different than they were. He was different. They were godless. They practiced all sorts of evil, treachery, murder, incest, all of these debauched lifestyles. His brothers, his older brothers, and he didn't. He loved the Lord. He uh, had a spiritual affinity that his father had. In fact, one writes, no other son came close to Jacob's spiritual stature than Joseph. He stood for truth, for God. All by himself, amid all the other brothers. Maybe, and maybe that was your family. I know what that is, to have a family where some of my brothers and sisters don't believe in the Savior, and some of you have that. And sometimes you're put to scorn and abused and mocked and ridiculed and made fun of. And particularly if they're older, they always kind of look down and pat you on the head. And oh, you don't know anything. And when you get older, you'll really know. And all that kind of thing. You know what that is. And, and he stood for right, and, uh, and he took the abuse of that, didn't he? So long as he was present, his virtue exposed their vice. And they hated him for it. The Bible says in the New Testament, everyone that does evil hates the light. And that's what he was to his brothers, and it compounded their hatred of him. We know that in the life of the Lord Jesus, right? He was the light, and they crucified him. They couldn't stand it. That light was standing in the midst of rank evil and darkness and sin, religious evil. And so they said, crucify him. And Joseph stood in that same line. And maybe you do as well. These are the dynamics, the influences, the experiences of Joseph as we go forward to help us know, who is this man that seems so different and yet so, so blessed of the Lord and so enabled and yet would suffer so much? And uh, This is who he was in his early years. Well, lessons for our life quickly. Number one, God has chosen our families, the families for us. Yes, he has made a mistake. We can respond to it and say, for good or bad or ugly or worse, Lord, thank you for my mom, thank you for my dad. Even if they harmed you or hurt you or abused you, we're less than what they ought to be. Thank the Lord for that. God didn't make a mistake. We ought to, we ought to still do that, even if they're, if they're gone. Say, Lord, thank you. There are things I learned. Maybe my dad wasn't the best, but he worked hard, and he taught me what hard work was. Or maybe he wasn't saved, but uh, he, he, was, he was honest, and he cared for us. He protected us, and, and the whole gamut of things. Maybe there was abuse there, and, but even in that, you can find in the reasons to thank the Lord, and we ought to do that. We ought to come to that point of peace and contentment and say, Lord, whatever you do, you do well. We live in a fallen world that's filled with sin, and it happens, and it happens to us. Lord, thank you for what you have done. Look where Joseph was born. I dare say the dynamics there were <laughs> worse than what you and I came into, as bad as what we may have been born into. It wasn't that. Number two, 
Second lesson for us. Perhaps uh, you too have, an unbe- have unbelieving brothers or sisters. You, and you long to see them saved. You share the gospel. They think you lost your marbles and, and all the rest. And maybe make fun of you or mock you. And, or maybe of your standards and, and all the rest. I urge you to respond like Christ to them. With meekness and humility. Share with them the love of Christ. And love them uh, as Christ would love them. Look at how the Lord deals with those that were in darkness. He's gentle. He treats them easily. He speaks kindly to them. Isn't it any wonder that the the sinners, the harlots, the prostitutes, they flocked to him. They ate with him. And may God give you grace to reach out to them and pray for them and work to see them wonderfully saved. Respond, Respond to them as the love of Christ. If they die in their lost condition, you know, hell is a long time. It's forever. At least be kind to them. It'll be the only moments of kindness that they'll ever have in their entire existence. But more than that, pray that God would open their hearts and the miracle regeneration and save them. For only God can do that. You can't. You can't convince them. You can't. God must save them and open their hearts their eyes to see the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Number three, come to appreciate all the influences and experiences that God has given to you. Come to appreciate that. Your story is different. Joseph's story is different from all of ours. Mine is different from yours. Yours are different from one another. It's like the snowflakes again. They're all different. It's like our fingerprints. They're all different. We all have a story. In those early formative experiences and influences, boy, while the cement is really wet, they do take away, have a way of forming and shaping us, don't they? They really do. I wish we had time. We could pass the mic around. I wish we could fix the mic first. (laughs) And just uh, talk about, uh, you know, what uh, what really stood out? What what really hurt you? What formed you? What made you? What broke you? And all these things and how it hit. And we would help to come to realize these things. You know, it's no different than a kid being told, you're a failure, you're a louse, you'll never amount to anything. And hear that all his life. And you, you wonder when he becomes into early manhood why he feels he can't do anything. This has only ever been told that by the people that so-called loved him and brought him into this world. You see the influence. And he'll live all his days trying to overcome that. And it's an enormous thing for him to if he'll ever do it. You see, come to appreciate all these things that God has allowed into your heart and life for his weaving together a beautiful tapestry. Number four, number four, look at this. The early loss of a loved one can make you either tender or bitter to the Lord. And some of you have lost maybe children, unborn children. Some of you have lost those that are near and dear to you. They can either keep you very tender very close to the Lord, or will harden you. Beware of that. It scares me, the sin bent that each one of us have. We can become so calloused over so quickly. Stop listening to the words of life, the text says, and you will depart from the, from the path. Daily, we need to keep our hearing God speak to us and feed us, or, or the events of life and, and the sorrows of life will be far afield from where we ought to be. We'll be lost out in the field. I mean, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Remember God to Elijah? 
what are you doing here? Come back to that place if that's hardened you. Come back. Be tender and broken before the Lord. And finally, number five and last, perhaps you're here and you're unsaved. You're still in, in your sin. You still stand before holy God. The wrath of God hangs over you and will fall. They that believe not are condemned already, Jesus said in John 3.18. There's only one way of escape. Truth is narrow. It's definite. It's like a turnstile at the ball game. You go through it one at a time. You must be born again. You must go through that one at a time. You must realize that you're a sinner, that you have no righteousness that will ever appease holy God. None. That Christ has done it all. He's made the payment. You must turn from your sin, receiving the Savior, and be saved today. In the quietness of your heart, you can do that, whether young or old. I'd urge you to receive Christ and be saved. Well, those are the early years of Joseph. Boy, what a boiling pot he was born into. It makes my family seem uh, pretty rosy. Amen? And yours too. There weren't four mamas around, you know, each one pushing their own junior to be daddy's favorite, behind the scene, manipulative, crazy, fleeing from Grandpa Laban. He's going to kill us. Facing Uncle Esau, he's going to wipe us out. Oh, God, we're in deep trouble, moving on the lamb, all these things. And then the deaths of some significant people. Wow. Wow, well, the earlier. So let's stand and be dismissed. May the Lord.